Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you would be turning your Bibles to Hebrews 12, and while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class for any who may be participating in that this morning. You guys can make your way to the back, and our volunteers will be there to greet you uh, for that class. And also, before we even get into Hebrews 12, I just want to take a moment and just thank Steve and Lisa Goldberg for being here this morning. I know we introduced them to you all. Uh, through the email that we sent out, but we're so thankful that Steve and Lisa are here leading us in worship along with their son, uh, Grayson, as well, uh, and just call on us to continue to be in prayer about how the Lord may be leading us and leading them as we seek his will together as a church uh, for, uh, for them uh, as they seek to see if, if, if it would please the Lord to be uh, leading us in worship each week. We're so thankful uh, for how the Lord has provided Well, as I said, we will be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. So let me read our passage for us, and then we'll take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he, sought it, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. What a joy it is to sing about, to reflect on the mercies you have shown us in Jesus. And Father, we know that it's only because of what Christ has done that we are here this morning under the truth of your word. And so, Father, we ask you to do the very thing you have already promised to do. Just as we ask every single week, we, we plead with you that you would be at work in us through the truth of your word by the power of your spirit this morning. We are so thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us to to give us eyes that can see the glories of Christ, to understand the truth of your word. And so we pray that you would just continue to allow us to do that this morning, that you would guide us into all truth this morning. Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning, that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, what is true of your word. And Father, we pray that all of us would be transformed by what you intend to say to us this morning. Particularly, Father, I pray for us as a church, corporately. I pray that the weight of what this passage is calling us to and our responsibility and obligations to one another, I pray that that weight would rest on us and that we would feel the conviction of the Spirit uh, with what you were calling us to be as your people, committed together in a local body of believers. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last more than a month now in the book of Hebrews, we've been reminded time and again that we have need of endurance. We've seen that theme pop up over and over again. We saw faithful examples of enduring faith in Hebrews chapter 11. At the start of chapter 12, we, are, we were reminded that we are running an endurance race in which we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely so that we can run with endurance. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, uh, we were told that it is for discipline that you have to endure 
God is treating you as sons. Again, this call to endurance. We've seen it over and over and over again. In fact, you may even feel like you're having to endure learning about endurance. We've been talking about it so much, right? But we're just saying what the Bible says. This is what God is calling us to in these chapters. But a really important shift occurs here in verse 12, this whole section, verses 12 through 17. And what verses 12 through 17 are saying to us is that if we're going to be able to run with endurance, if we're going to be able to have enduring faith, then we're going to have to do it together. That we need each other if we're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, Recently, I was reading about one of the most difficult and grueling sporting competitions in the world called the Tour de France. Some of you may be familiar with cycle racing, with bike racing, but the Tour de France is almost universally accepted as as perhaps one of, if not the most grueling sporting competition that exists. It takes place over 23 days. 21 of those days are racing, so they get two days of rest. But in those 21 racing days, they travel over 2,300 miles. 2,300 miles on a bike in 21 days. But what many of you may not know, if you're not into cycling, you may not realize that professional cycling is actually a team sport, right? You look at it and you hear individual names and it looks like it's a lot of individuals racing. But in reality, there are teams that race. There are teams of nine that compete in the Tour to France because if any man on his own tries to finish the race, he, will, he won't finish. It's not possible. And so they, they have these teams of nine and there's all kinds of responsibilities. In fact, there are certain cyclists on the teams that they're not even trying to win the race. That's not their purpose in the race. Their goal is to make it easier on the other guys to have a chance of winning the race. And so they'll do all kinds of things. They'll lead the pack part of the time so other guys can draft behind them to make it easier on the rest of the cyclists. Sometimes if it's not their, the leg that day, it's not their strength, then their job will be to grab water bottles for the other guys and uh, bike around and find them in the pack of bikers and hand off water bottles to other people. So even the cyclists are helping each other in the midst of that race. But even beyond that, there's an entire staff of people supporting the riders. Each team has at least, at least 17 staff supporting the cyclists as they go on this 2,300-mile trek through France. There are four guys that have a fancy, a fancy French name that I'm not going to try to say, but the, they, uh, they provide, it's just this kind of everything position. They provide everything the riders need. They, they give massages to the riders. They be sure they have nutritious meals packed. They, it's basically their job to, to be sure the riders, the cyclists, don't have to worry about anything during that month of racing. So there's four of them. There's a general manager, there's two race directors, there's a cook, a full-time cook during that time. There's a press officer, a hospitality manager, a technical director, a doctor, and a photographer. And on top of all that, each team has 10 vehicles, one truck, one bus, one sprinter, one van, and six cars. And they have 27 bikes and 80 tires that they manage in the midst of all of that. It literally takes a small village to complete the endurance race of the Tour de France. And what I want to say to you this morning and what this passage is saying to us is in the exact same way, it takes a local church to finish the race. If we're going to endure and make it to the end faithfully, we're going to have to do it together. We need each other. That's what Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 is calling us to. A few weeks ago, we saw that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Well, this week we're seeing that we are, we need to be surrounded by a cloud of local believers in a local church that we're committed to, where we are committed to a group of people, and that group of people is committed to us. 
Now, we've seen this theme throughout Hebrews. This is not a new theme, right? So if we just look at a few different places, just to run through. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we have a responsibility to one another. Or chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, we have a responsibility to each other. Or most clearly, perhaps, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, excuse me, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so that theme now continues into verses 12 through 17 in the context of running this race with endurance that we need each other if we're going to be able to do this. So how is it that we are being called in this passage to help each other run with endurance the race that is set before us? I think there are three specific things the author of Hebrews is saying to us. So let me give you, we need to encourage those who are struggling. We need to encourage those who are struggling. Number two, we have to pursue holiness together. And number three, we must watch over each other. Encourage those who are struggling Pursue holiness together and watch over each other. So let's take these one at a time. First, we must encourage those who are struggling. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, when we read this, the temptation is to read this as an individual command that To to read it as if the author of Hebrews is saying to us, you individually have a responsibility to take your drooping hands and your weak knees and make them strong, right? It can be understood as some kind of command to have self-determination and discipline, to make this true of yourself, to strengthen yourself in this race. And while that certainly could and should be true, we do need to do the work of strengthening of ourselves through reading God's word and doing lots of other spiritual disciplines. But the reality is the the context of this passage makes clear that this is a command about how we are to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we need to be about looking around at those we have committed to gather with in a local body of believers. And we need to be ready to lift drooping hands and to strengthen the weak knees of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only does I think the context of the passage point to that, because uh, all the rest of this section is about what we're doing for other people. Strive for peace with everyone. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So there is the contextual reality of, uh, I think, encouraging us to see verse 12 and 13 as uh, how we are to strengthen other people. But even the Old Testament reference that's behind these verses says to us that this is about what we are doing for other people. So behind this, uh, these verses is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Isaiah 35, 3 and 4 says. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So what is Isaiah 35 saying to God's people? It's saying to God's people, you need to look around at those who have weak hands and feeble knees, those who have anxious hearts and and are struggling to trust that God's going to work this thing out. And when you look around and see that, you need to speak to them. You need to say something to them. You need to remind them of who God is and his character and his love for his people. You need to say to them things like, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Remember who God is. Remember what he has promised you. He will 
keep you. In other words, I think one of the ways, if we look at Isaiah 35, that we lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees is by speaking words of encouragement to one another. In fact, I think we see this truth as well in Job chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Again, the same language is used. Uh, This is where Eliphaz, Job's friend, is talking about how Job used to be. This is how, this is what you used to be like, Job. And this is what he says to Job. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. So how is it that Job would make firm, feeble knees and uphold those who were stumbling and strengthen the weak hands by instructing people, by communicating words to people, by encouraging those in his care with the truth of who God is and his character? This is what God is calling us to as his people. When we see our brothers and sisters struggling, we we speak to them. We remind them of who God is and what God has said what he has promised to them to help them get through their struggles and their darkness when they seem downcast or downtrodden, when they have this body language, this, these drooping hands and, and weak knees. My, uh, my family is uh, uh, tired of hearing the story I'm about to tell you, but it's a perfect illustration of, I think, what God is calling us to here. So I've, I've used this story in various illustrations, but sorry, kids, I'm doing it again. All right. So many years ago now, when I was in high school, um, I, I enjoyed playing basketball. But this one season, my junior year, I decided after season was over, I was going to run track. And so I uh, did that. The reason I did it is I wanted to do the high jump. Thought that would help with basketball. Was having a great time doing the high jump. You know, that's not a lot of physical exertion. You just, you know, take about 10 steps, jump over a bar. Uh, that's all it is, Right. So uh, one day uh, there at practice, we had a track meet the next day. The coaches walk over and say, hey, Jonathan, you're a tall guy. Tall guys tend to do pretty well at the 400-meter race. Uh, Would you be interested in doing that? Well, I was just kind of wired to do what coaches call me to do. And so I was like, sure, I'll give it a go. And of course, they didn't tell me. What I now know is the 400-meter race is essentially considered a torture device, right? It is essentially the worst race in track and field like known to man because you have to basically sprint 400 meters, right? That's up and down a football field four times sprinting, right? NFL guys run 100 yards. They go get oxygen on the sideline, right? Okay, so 400-meter race, and what they said to me was, you're basically going to have to sprint, but you need to pace yourself a little bit. But what did I hear? You need to sprint, all right? So I haven't practiced this. I'm not conditioned for this. The next day comes. Track meet. I'm there. And the whistle goes. And remember, they told me to sprint. So I take off, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, everybody's behind me. I'm like, why are all these, why am I in first? I must be a track star, right? The wind's blowing through my hair. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm going, right? 200 meters, I hit a wall. And I feel, oh no, this is, this is not going to go well. 250, 300, that final curve, my legs literally go numb. I cannot feel my legs. My lungs are burning I'm uh, literally, I'm not exaggerating. I'm about to fall on my face. My legs are flailing behind me. I can't get my balance. I can't feel my legs. And everything in me in that moment wanted to shut down, quit, go get in my car and go home and, and never see a track again, right? But in all seriousness, in that very moment, fit about 10, 15 of my track teammates are on the interior field. And they're just shouting, you got to keep going. Keep going. You, you can do this. Keep running. Finish. We, we need the points, right? You got to finish, right? You got to keep going. And when everything in me wanted to quit, they were reminding me that I needed to keep going, that there were other people counting on me, that I could finish the race if I would just get through it with grit and determination 
and get to the end. So because of their encouraging words, I found somehow within me the ability to keep going and to get across the finish line. And then I collapsed and was out of it. And I ran that race a few more times, but I did not come back for track the next year. All right, but, but nonetheless, to finish that race, the encouragement of those who were there with me helped me get to the end. And every time I read this verse about drooping hands <clears throat> and weak knees, I think about that race that was well over 20 years ago now. I think about how my weak knees and weak legs would not have made it if they weren't there to say encouraging words to me, to remind me of the need for me to finish the race. And look, I just think that's a, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I just think that's a beautiful picture of what God is calling us to be as his people. When we look around, when we get into our life groups where we really get to know each other and we notice that people are, are struggling, that's when we need to remind them of God's truth and tell them they can keep running, that God's going to be faithful to them, that he's going to keep them that he hasn't forsaken them, that we are his adopted children, that we belong to him, and that he's going to be good to us, that all things are for our good. And because of those true words, we can keep on running the race. I can't tell you how often simple, encouraging words from one of you will lift my spirits and get my heart out of a rut or a difficult place. And I'm sure you all have experienced that in your lives as well. But of course, we have to notice also what verse 13 says, which we need to lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees, but we also need to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We need straight paths. We need to not veer to the left or the right. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying to us, as we encourage each other, as we seek to strengthen each other, we must do so in truth. We must Make the path straight before others. Tell them what God wants from us. We must pursue obedience and truth. If we, if we encourage one another with untrue things, with empty words, with things that take us off of the path God has for us, that lead us away from obedience to our Savior, then we're not helping people. We're simply going to do what verse 13 says. And then what is lame is going to end up just being worse off and put out of joint. But if we're willing to encourage with truth, to make the path straight before our brothers and sisters in Christ, to remind them of what God has called us to be and to do, then as they pursue Christ in holiness on that straight path, what they will find is healing and hope. This is what God has called us to do for each other. So how do we, how do we live this out? Well, one way is by doing exactly what we've done already this morning. By making gathering together on Sunday morning a priority. Right? That's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 said to us. That we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we are to what? Encourage one another. So when we gather, we gather to <clears throat> encourage each other, to remind each other that we're not in this alone, that we're together in fact, even what we've been doing, uh, what the Goldbergs just led us in is part of this equation, right? As we sing together, part of why we sing is to encourage one another. Hebrew, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 says that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do we do that? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So one of the ways that we can lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees is by showing up on Sunday morning and singing your heart out, not just to God, but to each other. Which is why, by the way, we, we place a high priority on two things in the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. They must be theologically true, rooted in God's word, and they must be songs that the congregation can participate in. Because if we're not doing either of those things, then we're not obeying what God has called us to do. 
He's called us to sing truth to each other. And so therefore, you need to sing. And I'm so blessed that in this church, we are so blessed that in this church, we sing. And I've said this dozens of times over the past months, that the, the sign of a healthy church is that it is a singing church. And you all sing, and I'm so thankful to hear you singing out. It's one way that we can obey, verses 12 and 13. Of course, this also means that we have to be ready to offer words of encouragement to each other. And in order to do that well, it means that we have to know each other. And you have to allow yourself to be known. You have to know, and you have to allow yourself to be known. And that only happens... That only happens if we're investing in each other's lives. If we can see if something's off that day, if they just seem a little different, if they just seem to be struggling, something about their body language, something in, uh, in, in the way they're responding to something that you've said, right? You have to know someone to know something just doesn't seem right. Something just needs to be said to you. I, just, I need to encourage this person. I mean, just to be completely transparent. So Thursday... We had our men's Bible study. We were here. I was struggling with a bit of a headache that day, and I, I tend to try to kind of in those contexts sit back a little bit because I want other people to be speaking and, and talking, letting other people lead. And later that afternoon, uh, Floyd need, called me because we needed to chat about some other things, and he just said to me, you doing okay? You just seemed a little off at Bible study. Right? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that he knew me well enough and was willing to ask me that question. It's those kinds of small things that we need to be willing to do for each other so that we can lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and help one another finish this race and endure to the end. But we will only be able to do that if we know each other. And one of the best ways to do that is in our life groups that meet each week. Uh, right now, we've got a couple on Monday evenings, one on Tuesday evening. I would just encourage you, if you are not a part of one yet, to make that a priority in your life so that you can know others and be known by others and then live out obedience to verses 12 and 13. So we run this race of endurance by encouraging one another. That's one way we do it. Second way is we, we have to pursue holiness together. Pursue holiness together. Look at verse 14 with me. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the command is to strive, and we're to strive after two things. We're to strive after peace, and we're to strive after holiness. The word strive here means exactly what you would think it means. It means to run after, to pursue, to go after. This is, these are things we're to, to run after, to strive after. We're to strive after peace. We're to strive after holiness. And the word's in the present tense, which means it's to be the habit of our lives. We are to continually, every day, be running after, pursuing peace with each other. And we are to be pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what I want you to see here is how striving for peace with everyone and pursuing holiness are connected to each other. So, so why is it that I'm lumping both of these commands to pursue peace and pursue holiness into one command to just pursue holiness? Well, first, of course, the author himself lumps them together under the word strive. He sees something together in them. Strive after these two things together at the same time. Strive after peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So the author himself sees them as going together. But additionally, just, just logically, it makes sense to say that if you're not at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're not going to be able to strive after holiness. It's not going to happen. You have to be at peace with each other. If you have bitterness, anger, tension with another believer, it's going to short-circuit your ability to pursue holiness. And one of the main reasons for that is that you need your brothers and sisters to be ready to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. And if you're not at peace with them, then they're not going to be able to do that for you. They're not going to be able to effectively do the rest of this passage either, seeing to it that we, uh, that we do not fail to obtain the grace of God, right? So the very reality that we need each other to run this race means that we need to be at peace with each other so that we can run this race. 
notice also just as a reminder that this command is something, as I said, we are to continually run after. We have to pursue peace. Peace is not something that naturally happens. The natural thing that typical, typically happens is conflict. Peace takes work. We have to strive after it daily. We have to run after it. Look, let's just be honest. Let's just be completely honest right now. In the life of this church, we are going to have conflicts. Feelings are going to get hurt. Uh, words are going to be, hurtful words are going to be said to each other at times. Now, I'm not saying I want that to happen. I'm just saying we're a room full of sinners. These things are going to happen. <clears throat> the question is, what do we do when it happens? Do we brush it under, you know, sweep it under the rug? Do we pretend like nothing's happened? Well, no, that's, that's not how you pursue peace. No, we need to pursue reconciliation. We need to pursue repentance, forgiveness, confess that sin to one another if we've hurt someone. It's why, by the way, when we, the first Sunday of each month, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we, we see that warning of 1 Corinthians 11, and we remind one another that, that you need to be at peace with each other before you partake in the broken bread symbolizing the body of Christ and the juice symbolizing his blood. We need to be at peace. And we say every Sunday when we do that, if you're not at peace, then pursue reconciliation and peace with your brother or sister in Christ before you come forward to receive the bread and the juice. We have to, something we're going to have to run after and commit ourselves to and pursue because we need each other. We need each other. Therefore, we have to be at peace with each other. And as we lean on one another and strengthen one another, we're able to pursue holiness together. Now, let's look there in detail at verse 14. It says that as we strive for peace, we're going to be able to pursue this holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that is a, that's, a, that's a weighty verse. We need to meditate on that for a minute. What is verse 14 saying to us? Is, is verse 14 saying that if you don't achieve perfection, if you don't achieve holiness in your life, then you're not going to be able to see Jesus? Is that what verse 14 is saying? Is our entrance into heaven to be able to, to see the Lord, is that based on our ability to become holy? Because it would be very easy to read verse 14 that way. So let's be sure we understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. So I want to make clear that there are two distinct truths that verse 14 is affirming. Truth number one, you must be holy in order to see the Lord. Period. Truth number two, we are commanded to strive after that holiness. Now, it's really important to keep those distinct in your mind. So let's just take them one at a time. We need to be holy in order to see the Lord. We can look at multiple scripture references to make that clear. Revelation 21 verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. It is talking about the new heavens, the new earth, the new, the new Jerusalem, eternity. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. We must be holy in order to see the Lord. Or even as we saw in our men's Bible study Thursday, 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Right? This high call to holiness but yet at the very same time, 1 John 1.8 says to us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, so do you see the tension here? There's a holiness without which we can't see the Lord. Yet if ever the words come out of your mouth, I'm holy and not a sinner, the Bible says you're a liar. So what do we do with that?
But we must remind ourselves, yes, we must be holy in order to see the Lord. But we are holy because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That it is because of his perfect righteous life, without sin, without stain. And the Bible says to us, when we trust in Jesus... Not only do we receive the forgiveness of the cross, right, where all of our sins were paid for, where Jesus took on the wrath of God in our place, not only does that occur, where we don't have to face God's wrath because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it is also true that the perfect righteous life of Jesus is given to us. We are clothed in it. That's what the word imputed means. His, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's counted to us. So what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says to us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So yes, yes, 100% yes, you must be holy to see Jesus, but praise be to God, Jesus gave you his holiness. So verse 14 is not saying to you, that you have to achieve holiness in your own strength in order to see the Lord. No, it's saying you need holiness. The rest of the Bible reminds us Jesus has given us that holiness, and it's that standard that we must strive after. That's what verse 14 is saying to us. We are to run after the holiness of God. Jesus is our righteousness, and therefore he is our example and as we run after him, we become more like him. Our standard for morality is not to compare ourselves to the world. Your standard for morality and holiness is not to compare yourself to other believers. Your standard that you need to run after is the holiness of God. You strive for the holiness that Christ has already accomplished in you. That's what verse 14 is saying to us. And if we're going to do that, we have to do it together. We have to do it together. We need each other to push us toward holiness. It's why our mission statement ends the way it ends, that we may present all mature in Christ. That's what we're going after together. And this becomes crystal clear in the last few verses of this passage, verses 15 through 17. And this brings us to our final truth of how we are to endure together. We must watch over each other. We must watch over each other. You see that there in verse 15. See to it. There are three specific things we are to see to. See to it, number one, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We are to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Number three, we are to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. But the overarching command is that we are to, to see to it, to oversee, to give attention to, to, to watch over one another in these things. A clear command of our responsibility to the body and to one another. So what is it that we're supposed to watch over? Well, verse 15, as I said, number one, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We have an obligation to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we commit to in a local body of believers. We have a responsibility to them to be sure that they make it to the end. This is basically a no man left behind command. See to it, strive after Watch over your brothers and sisters. Work hard to be sure that no one, that none of the people sitting around you this morning fail to obtain the grace of God. Look, this is weighty. So often we have been tricked and deceived and fooled into thinking that our Christian lives are about our individual pursuit of Christ. That it's about our individual spiritual disciplines, about us individually reading the Bible, individually praying, individually pursuing holiness. Yes, we should be about those things. And you will be held accountable for those things. But what this passage and other passages, 
passages in Hebrews have reminded us of is we will also be held accountable for how hard we worked at the holiness of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know how else to interpret verse 15. See to it, command, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's the obligation and responsibility that is being laid on us as God's people. And I do think it's important to say it is for the local church. That burden for every Christian in Raleigh doesn't rest on you, right? That doesn't rest on you. But when we covenant together as a local body of believers, that responsibility rests on you for each other. So number one, we have to see to it, watch over one another so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And one way that we do that is to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Look, if you've been in church long enough, you have seen this happen. You have seen roots of bitterness creep up. And they start small and they inevitably grow. I've seen it in my own uh, experience many times. Paul warned of these kinds of things. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Bitterness spreads. Which is why I love what this command says to us. It doesn't say, see to it that you fix roots of bitterness once you see them. No, what does it say? See to it that the root of bitterness doesn't even spring up to begin with. That's a command to you individually to fight against bitterness in your heart toward other believers. But it's a command for us corporately to create a culture in our church that prevents roots of bitterness from springing up and defiling everyone. So there are many ways we need to be sure of that. One way is we just need to be willing to be honest with each other. Right? Speak truth to one another. It's important for us as elders and leadership to be as transparent as we can possibly be, right? So that there's no suspicion or second guessing about what's going on behind the scenes. That's our goal. We always want to be fully transparent with you as your elders. We want you to be transparent with us. That's why, Lord willing, we try in every communication we send out about various things. We want your feedback. We want to hear from you. The worst thing that can happen is for you to feel like you can't speak about your concerns or what's troubling you and that that bitterness grows up inside you and then you start whispering about it to other people, that will destroy a church. And I'm thankful to God that it has not been part of this culture and it's only by his grace that it will continue. But we must see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble among us. And then finally... We are to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or, or unholy like Esau. That's an important question to ask. Why does the author place these two things together? Because there's no clear, unquestionable biblical evidence that Esau himself was sexually immoral. Some think it may refer to him marrying uh, the, the women that were kind of outside God's people. It, it very well may refer to that, but it's not, it's not clear. We do know that Esau was unholy. and let's, So let's talk about that for a minute and then see how perhaps it connects back to the sexually immoral statement. So why is it that the author of Hebrews is calling Esau unholy it's telling us to be sure that that doesn't happen among us. So what is it that Esau did? Well, Esau was the firstborn, right? He had the birthright. The inheritance belonged to Esau. And many of you know the story well, right? Esau goes out hunting. He's exhausted. He comes back. He, he feels like he's going to die, right? And he says to Jacob, look, if you'll just give me that, that pot of stew, right? That soup, if you'll just give it to me, you can have my birthright. 
And so Esau, and that's what happens, he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup, essentially. So what Esau has done is he has taken something sacred, right? The right of inheritance, the birthright, he has taken something sacred and made it common. He said, my birthright means nothing more to me than a bowl of soup. That, by definition, is what it means for something to be unholy. is to take something sacred and to treat it as common. And that's what Esau did. And he walked away. He, he rejected his position among the promises of God that he was to inherit. He was unholy. He sold his birthright for a single meal. And I think the connection back into sexual immorality is that that's what sexual immorality is. It is taking, taking something that is sacred, that is supposed to be in a marriage relationship between one man and one woman, and it's treating it as common. That's the connection that's being made. And we are to see to it that in the life of our church, in whatever area of our lives it may be, that we don't take what is sacred and treat it as common. That we don't take the truth of God's word, prayer, spiritual discipline, singing together, gathering together as God's people, that we don't treat it as common. That we, don't, that we want to hold one another accountable that, to be sure that we are pursuing holiness, not treating the things of God as common, the obedience that he is called to as common. Because here's the warning. Here's the warning in verse 17. When we do that, this is what we risk. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, what is verse 17 saying to us? Was Esau on his hands and knees sobbing with a repentant heart, pleading with God to forgive him, and God said, no. That, that, that's, that's not what's happening here. So let's be sure we understand what's happening. We know from the biblical narrative that Esau was enraged that he had given up his birthright. Then, of course, later Jacob tricked him. And uh, so the blessing didn't come to Esau even when Isaac was blessing them. And so he missed out on it. And he was angry. He was enraged. He wasn't going to inherit it. And it says in verse 17 that afterward he realized what he had done, that he had sold his birthright, and he desired afterward to inherit it. In other words, what verse 17 is saying is he wanted the thing. That's what he was upset about. But because he had treated what is holy as common, his heart had become hardened, and there was no place for repentance left in his heart. Esau was not a repentant man. He was a sin-hardened man. And he could not even find repentance. He found no chance to repent. Not because he was repentant and God wouldn't grant it, but because he couldn't find it within his heart to be repentant. It's as one commentator put it, it was his loss, not his profanity, that he mourned. He was upset about what he couldn't have not about his unholiness. So this is the danger. That when we treat what is sacred as common, we risk having our hearts be hardened to the point where repentance will not exist anymore. And if you're not repentant, then you don't belong to Jesus. You will prove with your life that you never belonged to him in the first place. Therefore, we must watch over one another to be sure that that unholiness doesn't arise among us. We have to love one another enough to watch over each other to be sure that that doesn't happen because here's the good news. Here's the good news. Even when we sin, just as we did said during the prayer of confession, 
even when we sin, if we repent and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. The dangerous spot to be in is to be so hardened that you can't find that repentance in your own heart. That's what we need to be sure we avoid as we hold each other accountable and watch over each other. The words of this passage are heavy. The responsibility that 12 through 17 is calling us to is weighty. But this is what the Lord is calling us to as a church. Again, I mentioned it earlier, it's why the last part of our mission statement says that we do what we do so that we might present all mature in Christ. It is our responsibility and obligation to one another to help each other be mature in Christ, to pursue faithfulness together and to endure to the end. And if we're going to do that, then we need to hear verses 12 through 17. We need to know one another well, be ready to encourage one another that we might lift drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, make straight paths so that what is lame may not be put out of joint so that we can continue faithfully. We have to be committed to peace with one another, to pursue that peace so that we can strive, run hard after holiness together. And we must be willing to watch over each other so that none of us, so that none of us fail to obtain the grace of God. That's what God is calling us to be for one another as Christ's fellowship leads full. May he, by his grace, make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. These are challenging words to hear, but we, we need to hear them. Father, I'm so thankful that that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us clear instructions on who you want us to be as a church. Father, I'm so thankful for this body of believers who I know are committed to these things. But Father, all of us, myself included, need to feel the weight and the conviction of these verses so that we can run after these things with even more intentionality and diligence than we ever have before. Father, I, I need my brothers and sisters to do these things for me. They need each other to do these things for one another. And so, Father, I just pray by your grace that you would bring it to pass, that you would help us to take seriously this command that, where we hear that we have responsibility for one another. And so, Father, I pray for each person in this room that you would convict us of our need to, to allow ourselves to be known to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to also pursue relationships with one another where we can see these truths being carried out for our good and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.